0: came up in the early 70s in New York playing, that's pretty much coinciding with the loft scene. And I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that scene and compare it to what's going on in New York and Brooklyn now from your perspective.
1: Okay. Um, Well, I I know a lot about the loft scene and where I I fit it out. You know, I was coming from the Bronx downtown and uh, the play and there were many, this was like around 1971, and uh, there were many musician-owned spaces at the time. Um, the rent in New York for a space, a storefront, was about 150 to $200. So you could get a, a space and put some music in there, and it was affordable. So when I I came down, there was a space on um, 11th Street and uh, Avenue C called the Firehouse run by a saxophone player named Juice, Alan Glover. And he had music there practically all day. Um, It's where I I met Andrew Hill and uh, met Billy Higgins. And, And from there, having met Billy Higgins, we had a very good rapport. So I would go out to his house in Brooklyn, uh, St. Mark's Street, and we'd play duets. But the first time I went out to his house, uh, the piano player Chris Anderson was there and Clifford Jordan was there and Warba Ware was there. So I got to meet those musicians and uh, play with them and then play the duets with Billy. And then you, you'd get out, get on the subway, come up, and you'd run into Rashid Ali. And Rashid Ali invited me to play at Hillies on the Bowery, which was uh, what became later to be called CBGB's. Mm-hmm. And we play there every Tuesday with Jimmy Vass and, and Marvin Blackman. And uh, that was a the space. Then. On uh, 193 Eldridge Street was Studio We, run by James Du Bois and Juma Sultan. And there, Carl Berger, Dave Burrell, Archie Shepp, and they had five floors of music, 24-7. So you'd go there and play till about four o'clock, then head over to 24 Barnes Street, which was Sam Rivers' place. And the uh, first time I went down there, I met Sonny Murray, I met uh, Charles Tyler, I met a whole bunch of musicians, so it doesn't really take long to get to know the musicians and play there. And uh, so that was another place, they had music. Up the street from 24 Barn Street was the Ladies Fort, run by Jolie Wilson and uh, we also played there. Um, There was a place on St. Mark's Place called Someplace Nice, run by a guy named John Dahl, and I was playing with a group called the Music Ensemble, which was Billy Bang and Earl Freeman, Dewey Johnson, the trumpet player, you might know from Ascension, Daniel Carter, uh, trumpet player named Malik Baraka, and we played in there all the time, so we're playing in there, and Joe Bowie and Charles Bobo Shore just got off the plane from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so they're walking by, they hear us playing, so they come in. So uh, right after uh, we played, I had to go down to 96 Chambers Street to play with Cecil Taylor's big band. So I took Joe Bowie with me and Bobo and we all went down there. And that's kind of how it was. You, 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 you'd have all these scenes and all these musicians and you'd go from one place. You know, Rashid Ali had opened up 77 Green Street. That was another spot. There was a place called Inroads on Mercer Street that Charles Tyler and Frank Ferrucci had opened up. There was a place on 2nd Avenue upstairs called the Sunrise Studio. Used to play there a lot with Kapu Umetsu and Ahmed Abdullah, Yuri Hirata. And because at that time, in the mid, like 73, 74 or so, uh, musicians from Japan started coming to New York. So um, I got married in 1975, and I moved down to Sixth Street. My rent was $75 a month, and it went <laughs> up to $90. And, um, and I remember I, I would go out to get a container of milk, at say six o'clock in the evening, and uh, I get back at nine o'clock. <laughs> now it was okay as long as I came back with the milk, but <laughs> <laughs> but what would happen is like well what happened is you go to the corner and here comes Don Cherry, <laughs> here comes Frank Wright, here comes Frank Lowe, and you have these summit meetings because all these musicians were around. And uh it was it was it was really, really great. You know, Gracian Moncourt, you know, Jackie McLean. So uh that that's how it was. Anyway, uh, that that was the scene and they call that the loft scene because we were all playing in Lofts in a place called Inverone, also on four seventy-five Broadway, run by the Brubeck. It was owned by Danny Brubeck, one of the Brubeck brothers, and they let John Fisher, who ran the place, have a Big space to give concerts. We played it in Inverum quite a lot. Uh, Mark White, Cage, so um, Perry Robinson, going to I'm, you know, all the musicians played there, and we all knew each other, and uh, it, it was great. And that kind of lasted until Ronald Reagan became president, and uh, you know, things began to change. You know, you no know, real, I mean. And as early as 1985, you could buy a brownstone in Brooklyn for $18,000. As I know a drummer who bought two brownstones, $18,000 a piece, up until about 80, 85, 86. And then things really began to change, and uh, people couldn't afford it. You know, musicians moved from New York out to Hoboken, to Jersey City, to Brooklyn. So, um, and that was what was happening then. Now, now uh, it's a whole nother scene. You have a lot of now. You have the new schools. You have a lot more music schools. You have a lot more musicians coming to New York, and they have, they've got to find a pl- they've got to place find a place to play. So they create spaces um, out in Brooklyn. There are a lot of spaces. Also, house concerts out there, but uh, that people do at houses. And as uh, so I remember when Brooklyn, we go out to Brooklyn to play, because we used to play, I used to play at bars out in Brooklyn when I was doing the bar circuit. You know, places that if they didn't want to turn the TV off when the music started. You know, see, so yeah, I say, please turn the TV off, we're playing. And they say, said, well, I'm watching the Gary Cooper on the, on the you know. <laughs> so it was always a battle. But those are the kind of places, you know, me and Roy Campbell and other musicians, we we, we never. That's the only reason we went out to Brooklyn. And at at night there were no restaurants in Brooklyn. You always had to come to Manhattan was a hub. Now Brooklyn has changed. Brooklyn has restaurants all over the place. Uh, you know, they call Brooklyn the new Manhattan. Except now the rents in in, in Brooklyn have gone, you know, skyrocketed. I suppose, but you know, musicians are playing a little bit less, but they're still finding places to play and finding ways to uh, to survive.
0: from uh, the 70s when you started entering the scene and performing, uh, so many different things have happened. Uh, I was wondering if you could kind of highlight, if you don't mind, like almost decade by decade, like the 70s, 80s, 90s, going into the new millennium, what you feel are like key events or uh, special shifts in the scene that impacted you in, in positive and maybe negative ways, but things that really defined those decades to you from a, from a creative standpoint? Obviously, the loft scene in New York was a key thing of the 70s, but were there other things you know that you encountered that really were defining uh, experiences for well, you? Well,
1: for, for me personally, um, you know, the, the loft scene was the training ground. I mean, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, when I started playing music when I was seven years old, um, I played the trumpet and um, trombone and cello, and went on to the bass, and um, I was able to uh, study at the. My first studies were down at the Jazzmobile Music School, which was free, it was a program on Saturdays, and we had uh, Richard Davis and Mill Hinton, and Art Davis were the bass teachers. Uh, you had uh, Albert Tootie Heath, Tony Williams, Freddie Waits, I think Warren Smith was up there teaching drums, uh, Frank Foster, Bud Johnson, um, so uh Sonny Red, uh Jimmy Heath were some of the saxophone teachers, Benny Powell and Curtis Fuller were the trombone teachers. I got to hang out and meet Lee Morgan and Kenny Durham. They were up there teaching trumpet. Um Alan Shorter was up there for a little bit. Um I um trying to keep this saying something. <laughs> 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 uh, but um and so Roland Hanna was up there teaching piano. So it was a great program. I probably missed a whole bunch of teachers, uh, And so I was up there and I studied up there. But the thing up there is, um, I was talking about, I used to go to Joe Newman and mention Albert Isler. And uh, you know, he would look at me and say, not here, Parker, not here. <laughs> 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 uh, so, uh, so I, was, I wanted to get downtown and, and, and learn how to play free music, learn how to play the avant-garde, so to speak. So then I began studying with Jimmy Garrison, and uh, I also studied with Wilbur Ware, you know, having met him through Billy Higgins. Uh, he was living on 11th Street. So <laughs> that, that, that was like the initial training, and on-the-job training, because I was playing with Maxine Sullivan, you take the high road and I take the low road. She had a place in the Bronx with Bertha Hope and Elmo Hope's son called the House that Jazz built. And the Bronx was had abandoned buildings, but it had this one spot called the House that Jazz built. So we played there with a with a piano Irish piano player named Dill Jones and a drummer named Louis McMillan. So I did gigs with her. Uh, at the same time, you know I was I met Cecil Taylor in nineteen seventy three. So I was playing with him as early as 1973, 74. We played at Carnegie Hall, was a a big band. And in 1975, I played with Don Cherry at the Five Spot, did a week with him there. And uh, so everything I did in the 70s was major, because (laughs) I had never done it before. Uh, It was a pretty major thing. (laughs) And then, you know, in the 80s, you could begin to see things. The the, the, the music was still happening, uh, you know, began to record, uh, you know, with Frank Lowe on ESP, one of the last ESP records called Black Beans. I uh, was also playing a little bit with David Ware. Charles Brackine left New York around that time because uh, we had a group called the Melodic Artet with Ahmed and Roger Blank. And Charles used to like to play on the subway he had some uh, wind-up toys that play, and he plans playing the soprano and he had a run-in with the police I think he got beat up and he left and went to California so Charles left and also at that time to speak frankly uh, you know like I said the, the certain musicians were getting write-ups certain musicians weren't and so Uh, there's only room for so many out there. So a lot of the musicians went to Europe, a lot of musicians kind of like laid low. In 1980, I was walking down Avenue B and uh, I met Peter Koval, a German bass player. So he was walking down, we were walking right in front of Charlie Parker's house. So I said, aren't you Peter Koval? He was very much surprised that I knew who he was. I said, I know who you are. So so, uh, we came over to my house and we played duets that afternoon and we became friends. And so in 1981... uh, he invited me over to Europe to play at the FMP Festival. So that was a major thing because then I, be, I was introduced. The first one of the first gigs I did was with Tony Oxley and Connie Bauer and Peter Brotzman in Wuppertal. And then uh, going to Berlin and playing with Enrico Rava and Louis Slavis and Tomas Stanko. Uh, could call all the, you, na- you name a European musician, I played with You know, from Han, Benny, all of them I played with. And, because they all came through Berlin. And, and then in 1984, we, uh, Peter got a grant to come to New York for six months. And uh, we were always in the cafe talking and brainstorming. And we decided, because we had done, New York musicians had been putting on our own festivals. For years, because you had to, you, everything was self. You know, if you wanted something done, you had to do it yourself. Clubs weren't hiring, hiring musicians, so in '84 we uh, began. Saw, did this festival called Sound Unity Festival, which was funded by uh, uh, East German artist A.R. Pink, wow. and uh, he gave us $15,000. And the idea was, I had a meeting because I think Peter went away, had a meeting, and invited Bill Dixon down. And I have a tape of this meeting where we are talking about uh, get out of the give me a gig mentality, that it wasn't just about give me a gig and make money. So the idea was that every musician would get paid the same amount of money. There was no leader's fee. And so we agreed on that, and we hired a, a, a lot of musicians, you know, Jimmy Lyons group, uh, David S. Weir, Jerome Cooper, um, Peter Brotsman, Gunter Hampel, uh, oh, all the musicians, a hundred musicians were on that festival. And um, so that was called Sound Unity. They made a movie about that. So that was a pivotal thing that now uh, we actually, because before all the festivals we did, we never had any money. We just used to do them. I mean, because they were like what we call grassroots vessels. We, 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 so we didn't have a lot of money, but we we're able to. Uh, the, the actor, you probably see him in the movies now, Louis Guzman. And uh, I went over to Kwando, and Louis Guzman was in the office, and I rented Kwando for a, uh, like a $1,000 for the week. I mean, it was a little less than that, but, uh, but we had this place, Kwando. Yost Gavis came over people from uh, other places in Europe came and we put up curtains. It was really a nice grassroots effort. So we did that in 84 and that was repeated again in 1988 called Sound Unity 1 and Sound Unity 2. In the 90s, what happened was, uh, again, real estate's going up, Um, more musicians are graduating, Um, you know, and they were giving out all these degrees in jazz. So what happened is that you had a a whole stockpile of musicians with a degree in jazz, but the gigs were not stockpiling. the only thing you could do was go back and teach and get more people with degrees in jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had a lot of people with degrees in jazz who never did a gig. <laughs> so you so you knew you had, it's like you know you having a driver's license, but you never get a car and you never drive. So you weren't quite sure whether you did it, but you had the paper. So, so there were all the musicians coming into New York and uh, so in the 90s, um, there was um, another organization, which was uh, which was started uh, by Patricia Nicholson, called the Improvisers Collective, and that meant that was a uh, all these collectives. What, what it means is that you have about 50 musicians, and you have about three people doing all the work, <laughs> yeah. but it's collective. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> And what and, you realize that you know, certain people, all they can do is play the saxophone. All they can do, and to ask them to do something else would be like, <laughs> 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 why don't you just play the saxophone? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: you know, because the idea is that one person so to take the tickets, one person so to you know, make the coffee. Oh God, <laughs> you know, I'll make the coffee, you know. <laughs> so you have to do that sometimes in order for things to work. So, so that lasted a while. And uh, and into the, the 90s was kind of mild, going over to Europe a lot more. And uh, uh, my, it was sort of my last period, because from 81 to 91, I played with Cecil Taylor in the unit at that time. And then around 91 uh, we had the Field Trio and that kind of d- dissolved, I was playing with Bill Dixon and a lot in 91, uh, in the 90s also. And then I began also uh, around 94 I started the Little Huey Creative Music Orchestra which was a big band and uh, I'd always done big bands but this one I wanted to have a permanent band that would work with a name and everything. So I began to get my, uh, uh, do my own projects and, and get recorded, because I had a philosophy, and which I still have. I never asked for gigs. Never. never. I haven't asked for one gig in my life yet. And uh, I wouldn't say that you should try this philosophy if you're a musician, <laughs> <laughs> but I basically am lucky. I don't know. Maybe I have this, the the stall over my head, but I just answer the phone and, and get and get gigs. And they just they've been coming in, and they're still coming in. So anyway, so I, I, I because it's it, it's a philosophical thing, because I didn't want some of the producers who were asking me for gigs were younger than me, and I didn't want to give them the power of saying yes or no. So I adopted this philosophy of not asking for gigs and. So far, it's, it's worked. Uh, so I began to do my own projects. And that was kind of the, the platform in the 90s. Now, also at the uh, end of the 90s, let me see, 20, yeah. We, I guess the, uh, again, and this is something I've got to say, because people always give me credit for, for the Vision Festival. And I'm going to tell you all the truth, OK? And it's kind of funny because the amount of times I say this, they don't believe me. Okay, when the Vision Festival first started, okay, uh, Patricia Nicholson Parker, who was my wife, started that festival. The first thing I said to her, don't do it. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, I'm not going to have all these musicians coming here trying to say, where's my money? Because she didn't have any money. But she believed in it and she did it. But my reaction was no, i have nothing nothing to do with it, don't do it. Okay? So then say, well how are you can say I started it when I said I didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so now it's twenty-two years and that was a that was a very, very good thing that that, that became it, you know, getting funding and uh, becoming an institution. <laughs> To the the, the millennium, um, which is like 16 years already. Wow, time is really moving fast. So what happens is it's basically just more of the same, in the sense that now Europe is beginning to dry up a little bit. You know, someone painted Europe now; it's beginning to dry, and um, uh, you know because. The more Europe imitated, I mean, you could see it at the beginning. The, mar- the marking, there, there are two marking points with the deterioration of the music, is the Beatles, and, and what I mean is that before the Beatles, you could go in a music store and you could get acoustic basses right up there, and you could look at the basses and play them, but when the Beatles came out, uh, it was, acoustic instruments were move to the right and electric guitars all over the place. I remember the Beatles had a Saturday morning cartoon, The Beatles Saved the World. I don't know if you <coughs> saw that cartoon. You had Beatle wigs, you had Beatle suits, you had Beatle footwear, all of this. I mean, I never saw a Charlie Parker cartoon or a <laughs> Thelonious Monk cartoon, so, that was like 64, 65. Things began to decline. And then the other uh, uh, point was MTV. When MTV came to, to Europe, it's things began to slow. See, Europe is wonderful because you the you go to the you go you go to the bar, everyone's packed and they're talking. You go to the opera, it's packed. You go to the Michael Jackson concert, it's packed. You go to our concert, it's packed. Every, it's packed everywhere, because because everyone is going out and, and participating. When I first came to Europe, there were three television stations. And 12 o'clock, the same as here in America, you see the flag waving. Uh, we'll be back on the air at seven in the morning. And then it slowly began to change, more stations and more stations, and then MTV. And what happened was there was never an MTV, that just was solely jazz. You know MTV first it was black and white and then then it just grew and grew and grew and grew and the industry began to change. Now the the musicians who were playing acoustic music, they didn't change. They just still wanted to do what they were doing. They still had their message, still had their music. They just wanted to play. But again, Europe began to imitate America a little bit economically, but still Europe's cultural money is so much more than America. I mean, where did we just come from?
0: Sardinia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, it's like a little place, a little festival, but It has a international figures coming from all over the world to play. And, and, uh. Yeah, it was a town of 20,000 people. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's still better to go to Europe. So, uh, but now in the, you know, uh, from, from 2000 to 2016, I think the uh, the turning point was to make adjustments, to make adjustments so that you could survive and keep doing what you're doing. Um, and everyone has done it a different way, uh, whether it's uh, find money from over here, find money from over there, not go over so much, get a little teaching job. Um, you, you figured out something to do, because it was about survival, but the main thing was to keep playing your music, because you don't want to start developing a music and you're just like, and then you gotta stop. No, that, that's not what you live for. You know, um, Lyle Ellis, L- Larry Oakes, they had a group called What We Live For. Yeah, I mean, so that was it. This is what we live for, so you don't want to stop in the middle of what you live for. And, and just sit around and and, and and watch the Wendy Williams show all day, or or Jerry Springer. Don't ask me how I know about those shows.
2: <laughs>
1: but but uh, so uh, so I think that uh, you know at the end of the millennium it was about maintaining and recovering, but and then there's also loss. You know, you begin to lose people. People begin to, to you know, to, to die. Uh, you know, Fred Anderson. Uh, you know, Frank Lowe, uh, Don Cherry, Dennis Charles, Rashid Ali. I mean, you can just name all the people I knew and play with. It, it were beginning to go, and so and, and there's no replacement. So. Uh, So that's happening, there's this sadness, you're getting older, there's that kind of sadness, but you find the strength to go on because the music is beautiful and playing is beautiful and I think it's it's one of the the purest and truest beauties in, in the world.
0: music. Um, do you remember that first experience of coming into contact with more liberated music?
1: Yes, um, you know, uh, every Saturday was record buying day in my house because my father was into Gene Evans and uh, Brother Jack Mcduff and Willis Gatortail Jackson, Duke Ellington, Ben Webster. On bias, that music. And so he would always send me and my brother down to Hearn's department store to get records. And at that time, they were switching from stereo, from menorah records to stereo. So all the menorah records were 99 cents. And so, or 79 cents. So he'd always give us a couple of dollars. He said, Buy me one and get you one. So, you know, we, 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 we We'd all get, get him what he wanted, which we liked too. And then we started just buying like, we saw these strange covers, to us were strange, you know, Ornette Coleman, Change of Century, uh, Free Jazz. And we started buying the records. And um, as soon as I put it on, it was like, yeah, you know, it, this, is, this is happening. And in some records, it was happening so much, I never played it but once because I didn't want to spoil the experience. <laughs> I would just play it, and then it was like special. It's like you put it, bring it out on a special occasion. And then the more I heard it, the more I heard it, the more I read about it, and then you become really um, very uh, a fanatic about it. And, and you eat, sleep, and, and we started going to concerts. And uh, one of the. The first people we used to hear, they had a a building on 116th Street called the uh, Music Building, and uh, when Milford Graves and and Herbie Hancock were on the board of this organization, you know, it was the offspring from the New York Musicians Organization, and uh, we see Archie Shepp a lot. Archie Shepp at that time used to do a lot of free concerts at WBAI Free Music Store, and um, uh, Carl Berger. I mean, one of the first musicians I met was uh, well, was, was Charlie Hayden playing with Carl Berger before I even started playing the bass. And so I, I, I was writing some little reviews. So I, I'd go, and uh, they were doing a public library concert. So the more you listen, the more you meet the people. it, it just like also it was like uh it was a great. It was like. Being reborn again, and you really become to the point where you get those speakers, and you want to turn up Albert Island loud. <laughs> and, and, and there were some people who tried to crawl into the speakers. You know, I mean, they wanted to, like they couldn't get it loud enough. They said, "Oh, you know, they want to get, they want to just jump into the music because it was just, it was so beautiful, and it was so strong, and you just become obsessed with it." And and the thing is, that's what you have to do, really. In a sense, is become obsessed with it. You know where where it it just takes you to a, become a new you, so uh, so that's how I you know I became. But at the same time, I knew something else was pulling me and said, okay, well you better go play with Maxine Sullivan. You better play with. I mean, I was playing with a, a guy with a dummy ventriloquist, <laughs> and this guy was a, he was a, I won't name his his name, but he had a he had a, was a black guy. He had a, a white dummy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he would open up his act and say, "This is the, this is the only integrated acting in show business."
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and the that the rule was you never put the spotlight on his mouth because his mouth would move. He <laughs> 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 was the worst, but. I, <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, the guy still owes me money. We used to play. <laughs> we used to play at Wells Waffle House up in Harlem, and uh, he said, "Yeah, I'll get you next week. I'll get you next week." You know, so I, I would play that. I'd play with folk singers. I'd play with poets up at the Poetry Theater in the Bronx. You know, I just did whatever I could do because. You had to feel comfortable playing. It wasn't like saying, well, you have to do this to do that. It's just, that was just me. I just felt that I had to play everything that I could play whoever I wanted, ever I could play with. That's like the you know the lowest idea is technique, you know technique is just you know you, if you go to a college you talk about technique, or you go to a science fair you talk about technique. It's just like uh, you know Woolbert held it you know would have a the Wobble was small and the base would be up here, you know and that's the way he played. Was it good technique? Was it bad technique? Who cared? When Wilbur walked, you know, when I used to hang out with Wilbur, we'd go into this angry square, these places, and 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 the thing about Wilbur, you know, I didn't know I don't I didn't know whether he knew anything about music or not, because he was really like I I, I knock on Wilbur's door, and he say, "Who's there?" And I say, "It's me, William." Do I know you? And I say, "Yeah, Wilbur." And so he opened the door and he says, who are you? I said, it's William. He says, what can I do for you? And then I said, you know. And he says, then he say to me, it's six-pack time. (laughs) (laughs) Then he sent me out to get a six-pack. And I come back and I knock on the door. And he says, who's there? (laughs) And I say, it's me, William. He says, do I know you? And then the bass would be over there and then I say then he'd say, Oh, what's that over there? What's that over there? And <laughs> <laughs> I say, It's a bass, Wolver. He says, You can't play that. And then so he'd pick up the bass and he'd go, <laughs> boom, boom, boom doom, doom, dum, doom, doom. And then he'd give me the bass and he'd go like this. And then I'd go, boom, boom, ba-doom, boom, ba-doom, boom, ba-doom, boom. He'd say, no, 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 no. And then try it again. And I went, boom, boom, do doom ba do boom He'd say, that's it. <laughs> and that's how the lesson would go. So what he was teaching me is, don't do don't play like me, play like yourself. So Wilber was a very colorful guy, and, and he, so I said to Wilber once, I said, when you were playing with Monk, what did he tell you to play? He taught me to play anything I wanted to play. I mean, he didn't tell you no chords. He said, "No, play what you want to play." I said, "Oh, it's interesting." So I never knew what 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 Wilbur knew about music, but I know that it it wasn't like he had one kind of technique. You know, Richard Davis had another technique. Jimmy Garrison had one kind of technique, and technique was almost like the kind of shoes you wear to walk or the way you walk it really didn't It didn't have anything to do with your character or what came out eventually. I mean, uh, I think what we do, we tend to get a little intellectual about technique because people always wanna say, uh, well, you guys are just playing what you feel. You don't know what you're doing. So you get a little inferiority complex about it. You know, you can't play bebop. So, but the thing is that if you went to Indonesia, you don't go to Indonesian and go to the Indonesian musician and say, "Well, you can't play how high the moon," and they say, "I don't know how high the moon is." I mean, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so it's like, why should you be judged by one kind of music when there are all these kinds of music in the world? And so I think we tend to be a little, uh, you know, we have to prove that what we're doing is valid. To people who we shouldn't be proving it to. <laughs> if Matt here wanted to take up the bass, and uh, and and Matt, wow, where'd you where you get that from? And he said, I just started playing that way. Now I'm not going to say Matt, well, that's wrong, because it's not wrong. Who am I to say what you're doing is wrong? You know, you're doing it, so it's got to be right because you're doing it. And that's how you empower the student. You're doing it, you know. And, 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 and okay, like <laughs> in the long run, if someone is doing something really wrong, it'll backfire. You know, it, when you're playing brass instruments, you're not supposed to puff. You're supposed to have low, just the lips vibrating. Now if you puff all your life, what'll happen is, by the time you're 60, you'll lose your chops. So there is things, you know, like if you, if you play the piano bent over like this all your life and you don't do exercises when you bend back, which you end up getting a hump, you know. So there are things that will backfire on you technique, but it has nothing to do with the way you sound. Dizzy Gillespie sounded good until he couldn't play anymore. Okay, so, uh, so it's basically how you sound and whatever technique you use is up to you.